0: Hello everyone, I'm Kevin Miller, and this is The Ziegler Show, where our goal is to inspire your true performance. In this episode, stop hurrying and start producing. So we're all busy and we're all in a hurry. And who just loves that? Who feels they're producing their best work while in such a harried state? Yet who feels trapped by it? So now I'm supposed to give you the miracle seven steps formula that sounds real nice and shiny to addressing that, but we all know nothing's really going to change. Right. But there is no formula. It does, however, come down to awareness of what's really driving us, what we believe. I'm part of a prayer group of about a dozen guys, all business owners with big audiences, influencers is what people would say. One of them said a couple of weeks ago, actually, it wasn't that long. You got to get this book called the ruthless elimination of hurry. Uh, So I got it. So did everybody else. I read it. We all read it. And uh, it just was incredible. I contacted the publisher right away, said, I've got to have this guy on the Ziegler show with me. That's what I bring you today. That guy is John Mark Comer. So, John's story is this he was pastoring a successful megachurch in Portland, Oregon. They had six services that he did every Sunday. He said it was a marathon, and he was living a marathon lifestyle, as many of us are, which left him feeling burnt out and detached from those around him. I think we can all relate, unfortunately. Well, in a moment of desperation, he asked a mentor of his for advice and the response, you know, saying, what do I do to to get out of this, to stop this amongst this? And the response he received was this, you must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. There is nothing else. Well, from that was born John's new book, the ruthless elimination of hurry, staying emotionally healthy and spiritually alive in our current chaos. So in this show, we of course, unpack the concept. I want to get to the root issues. And what I found though, was this, it is just an amazing case for me to change my paradigm and limit the hurry in my life. So why it's not just some altruistic. So I can sit there with cross legs and hum all day. It's, it is of course, personal peace, but also it's for better production. I don't want to do a ton of good work. I want to do a smaller amount of truly great work. Just today, I got word from someone else that had read the book and said it significantly disrupted their life with this new perspective. And amongst this, we go deeper too into talking about lifestyles. What are the lifestyles that give us the results we want? And one of them we talk about is Jesus, which, you know, it's easy to discount. I did at some point or I have, or questioned it at least, you know, Jesus wasn't married. He didn't have kids or a mortgage or a nine to five job. Chris and I rethought he did have a scant three years to save the world before being assassinated. I think it's worth considering. Well, John leads us through some of that too in just such a poignant way. It was a mind changing, paradigm shifting message. You're going to get a lot from this show, folks. Uh, You can connect with John at his website, johnmarkcomer.com. And of course, find The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry wherever you buy books. So I'm going to bring John right to you after I share some great products and services. All right. Well, John, Mark, I got to first off uh, give kudos to Pete Vargas. No idea if you know Pete, but he is an, such an influential guy. My folks on this show, he was my guest in show 619. We actually got another show coming up with him soon. Just an incredibly influential guy and one of the most dear Christian brothers that I know. So I have a, 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 more, a Monday morning prayer group. We do it on Zoom with about 12 guys, all influencers uh, in their own right. And we came on one. He said, guys, I don't often do this, but you got to get this book. So he's going through the ruthless elimination of her, which I recognize because I'm a Dallas Willard fan and I recognize the terminology. So he gets props for doing that. We all got the book and they, I testified uh, to them about my own experience with the book and some of the things in there, which we'll talk about here in a second, uh, this last, this last Monday and said, I'll, I'll have interviewed you this, this week and I'll get them the recording. So there you go.
1: Wow, that is that—that's a bright spot to my day. Thanks for telling me that. Isn't that just stroke? Stroke my ego a little uh, bit? Sure. No, not my ego. It, just, we, is it its make- such a joy. Whenever you—you know—you do your work and you hope it's helpful to somebody. Yep. And whenever it is, you know, whoever the person is, it's—it's it's really an ongoing joy.
0: I just—I just trust in God's working through stuff like that, and that people you never, you have no idea about, are out there proselytizing something, you know, message that you you feel (laughs) like God gave. And so really neat. The book I have, um, I have, I've absolutely devoured. I've gotten in a, a relatively new habit of instead of taking notes somewhere else, I take notes in the book. So I'll, I'll hold yep. it up so you can see my note taking on on your yeah. right. Oh,
1: well the... done! Yeah, that's like that's like a prisoner on his wall cell. It level. is,
0: and, and yeah, <laughs> word to you. Next book, put a couple more pages back there because I ran out of space. So done.
1: Well, hardly anybody does that. That's, there's actually in every book, you know, they put pages at the back for that express purpose, yeah. but hardly anybody uses
0: them. Yeah. Well, I'm that one guy, uh, and yours well was in done. red. So it was a little different too, but well you know, done. overall, John Mark, I, what I found in the book and the message was just such a, I felt like it was a brilliant and gracious case for a non hurried life. That was really yes. hard to refute. It reminded me of, you know, eons ago reading Dave Ramsey's first, you know, book, uh, on right. finances and you read it and you think, Oh my gosh, that just, it just makes absolute sense and I almost felt like it was in essence giving me permission to embrace this non hurried life, which is yeah, so countercultural, to
1: set the hustle aside for a little set bit,
0: it, but, but, but just that, that it gave me, and, and, and it's neat that I got it in the context of this group so we can embrace it together, but it did, it gave me permission. And I wondered if that was something that you're seeing as people read this, especially if they are prone to being open to a non hurried life, that it's almost a, a bit of giving them permission to get off that hamster wheel. And yeah, that, that badge of busyness.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for sure all of the cultural pressure right now is toward hurry and digital distraction and constant connectivity and overwork and saying yes to everything and no limitations. That's like the current, like that's the, that's the direction of the current in Western culture right now. Yeah. And I think in particular for leaders and entrepreneurs and kind of type A personalities, for those people especially, they live with an almost like, inner guilt trip of, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough, I'm not doing enough. Or even people that aren't type A, but who maybe have, due to their family of origin, not to get all psychotherapeutic, but due to their background or experience, you know, a lot of people, you know, think that I'm not enough if I'm not busy. You know, Mm -hmm. John Ortberg has this great line, hurry isn't just a sign of a disordered schedule, it's a sign of a disordered heart. And that's where there's, you know, there's the kind of logistical reality of hurry in the modern world with the Internet and, you know, Silicon Valley and how everything is engineered for distraction and addiction and busyness and money. And there's like all the kind of logistical aspects of hurry. But then there's that like much deeper than that psychospiritual aspects of hurry where man you could take away our iPhone, you could move to rural whatever, and there would still be something in the human condition yeah. that is bent toward like a, a kind of a hurried existence where we're almost like we're outrunning our own shadow, our own demons, our own inner stuff that we're too scared to face. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, the exploration of hurry is more than just an exploration of logistics. It's an exploration of really the metrics of success that you live by and kind of the inner phenomenology of your own soul.
0: Well, and you talk about the status aspect, you know, the badge that we wear. We're so we're so busy. And I thought about myself because I had a bit of a coming to an end of myself and realized that it was just it it was it was a self-image issue for me. Yes. of productivity. Now, one, I, I like producing stuff. It's, yes. it's fun. And I'm the
1: same here. I'm type a, all of that. Yeah. Yes, I get stuff done.
0: I enjoy it. And I, and I had this feeling of guilt, but then I also started to realize, man, this is how I'm feeding my self image, the affirmations, the approvals, um, even with my family that, that loves me and realizing I had to go through kind of the, the, through the realization that I, I'm okay. If I don't produce, if I don't fix everything, if I don't take responsibility uh, for all that. But it was, yeah, it was a personal reckoning of my own self image and of why we're doing that, which, you know, and and you mentioned that kind of the digital age and we had Cal Newport here on the show talking about
1: one of my favorite writers. Okay.
0: He's incredible. So digital minimalism. uh, But you also included in the book right at the beginning, uh, you kind of dug into that. I think you talked about you know getting nerdy and getting into some of the details of that. And yeah, you, you did. You did a great job uh, for me of, of even Thank opening you. up. Uh, I've talked about it with my kids, saying, "Guys, because we talk about this a lot." Guys, with these devices that you have, you know, with the absence of those folks are paid for your attention, whatever they can do. I hadn't thought about it in that term until you, until I read your book that they're paid to get your attention. So we are out here and I'm not a conspiracy theorist that, you know, all commerce is evil. They're, they're doing what they can to sell something. I do, I do it right. as well, but that's that truth that they are paid to gain our attention. So we're here either Falling for that or embracing that or we're aware of it and guarding ourselves. And I felt like, again, your message really brought that to light of of the reality. It's the truth of what is happening in the marketplace. And we are going along like lemons.
1: It just is what it is, and I'm I'm not anti-capitalist by any stretch of the imagination. In fact, one of the reasons I love the podcast space, yeah. both on my own podcasts and to, you know to come in as a guest on yours, is because it's one of the only digital media uh, mediums that hasn't been corrupted by, you know what um, Jared Vanier in his most recent book, Ten Reasons Why I think it's called Ten Reasons or 10 arguments for why you should delete your social media accounts right now or something Uh like that might not be exact. But fantastic, short little read. And he's that kind of Silicon Valley OG original founded VR and stuff like that. And basically the business model, I mean, podcasting is one of the only – digital mediums that hasn't been corrupted by that business model. And while I'm not anti-capitalism, the bummer of Facebook or Instagram or YouTube or Twitter or Google is that they are all the business. You know, we don't pay for them. They're quote free. And the business plan is all around marketing. And so the way they make their money, we want to think of ourselves as the customer when we go on Facebook or Instagram, but we're not the customer. We're the product. The customer is, you know, the Fashion company that's marketing its new sweater to you, or whatever, and so they're harvesting just heaps of digital data out of our life, and then utilizing algorithms. And it's not necessarily like some e- evil genius, twenty-three-year-old, you know, software designer in San Francisco who just is Machiavellian and wants to take your soul. It's some of it's just algorithmic, you yeah. know, but it is specifically designed to distract you and addict you to capture your attention in order to sell your data and your attention to companies. And while I'm not anti-capitalism and hard work and profit, I am anti-distraction, addiction, and attention going to things, yeah. you know, that maybe are not the best use of our, our attention because attention really is the portal to much deeper things. It's the portal to our soul.
0: Well, and I'm sitting here with your book and I mean, somebody made the cover and they made it in a way that would hopefully let me see it on the end of the you know, uh, the the end cap at the bookstore or wherever and be attracted to that. So yeah, back to capitalism, not that it's bad, but it's up to us to be aware. And I appreciate you hitting that at the forefront of your message, you know, in the book. And I came to some of these questions just as I, I read the book after you know, completely, and now here we are, and it was just the things that were coming to mind, and I thought about the reality of doing this, because I've been talking. It's been a dialogue with my family and some of this, and, and gratitude that we do have a, a pretty non-hurried life, but now being more mm-hmm. intentional with it. But thinking about the average person listening who has just been caught up in the hurried life. For them to start participating, just brass tacks, saying, okay, I want to implement. Do you see people, and I know it's been, a, you've been you know, talking about this for a while, but the book is new, but do you see people generally taking baby steps into this or, and I'm sure it's, it's a little bit of both, but other people say, man, I, I got to do detox. Like I'm going to back off and say no to everything. I mean, you've seen people go yes. way off the other side.
1: And did Cal Newport do that with you? Did he do his concept of digital detox?
0: Man, I don't know. I don't remember That's that.
1: in his his most recent book. He basically argues that at a neurobiological level our relationship to technology in general and our phones in particular is one of addiction. Yeah. And you can't and because the business model Is designed for distraction and addiction. It doesn't work well to kind of negotiate with it. So he's a proponent of what he calls a digital detox, where you take 31 days of a clean break from, I think he defines it, uh, he would have to say it, but I think as every single, you know, you only do what would get you fired to stop doing, you know, so you have to do email once a day or whatever the bare minimum is to keep your job for 31 days, you know, And, and everything else is goes away for 31 days. And then you restart your relationship to technology. Now that's just technology is just one piece of the much larger problem of hurry. So yeah, I mean, I have no way of tracing, you know, all the people who read the book and what percentage of them, you know, whatever. But a big, um, because my kind of area, I would not say expertise yet, though that is my goal to become, you know, somewhat of an expert in it. But my area of focus and study as a teacher is really around spiritual formation, which is this kind of blend of spirituality and psychology. And it's really around the question of, change? How do, I mean, the central question is basically, how do people change? Mm -hmm. For me as a follower of Jesus, you know, that I can sharpen that question to how do I become more like Jesus himself and in doing so more my real true self. But some of the the science and the art of it applies to people across the religious and non-religious spectrum, just to change in general, human growth, potential maturity. And, you know, I am one of the convictions I've really come to is that information and inspiration alone do not yield transformation, you know? You can can read a great book, and you can actually even be moved at an emotional level, you know, and really inspired by this new concept, this new vision, this new information and data, and have it produce little to no change in your life. So information, you know, it has to move out of that information inspiration realm, which is where everything starts, but it has to move then into practice, And into, you know, relationships or community um, and and the spiritual realities into some kind of a spiritual power dynamic as well or source, what we would call the spirit of God, in order to affect real change. So that's why, you know, the whole front end of the book is basically my kind of, you know, journalist slash spiritual case for a slower life but the back half of the book is all like uber practical it's four practices you know which are all they're not like ethereal ideas they're like sabbath and silence and you know of 25 things in the last chapter on how to redefine your relationship with your phone. And, you know, Mm -hmm. so there's very practical things. So I regularly hear feedback of people that are incorporating some of the more salient suggestions in the book, whether it's major things like Sabbath, which is a a game changer for most people, but also a a high bar of entry, you know, and then other things like people parenting their phone, which is one thing that I have in there where you, you know, you turn your phone off before you go to bed and it doesn't, quote, get up until after you're awake and have Mm. had some morning time in the quiet kind of thing. So I'm regularly hearing feedback of that, but I don't, I have no way of judging or knowing or having really my finger on what level of change is happening to what percentage of people. But I sure hear a lot of great stories.
0: Oh, I'm sure you do. And the question came just from, again, my own thinking, my own life. We have gone through periods of homeschool. We, my wife primarily, of homeschooling. And then we had kind of gotten into, we, the kids wanted to be involved in this program and this program, and we'd gotten them involved in school. And the last couple of years, were just very harried and, yes. and, and hurried. we're
1: homeschooling our oldest right now, and it has been so stressful.
0: We, well, so we, we took them all out of, yeah. of everything and our homeschooling this year. And the change in that. How old are they? Uh, well, I've got a lot of kids, but this group is, uh, this group what's is the range seven to 15. So what is that's like second grade yeah. to freshman in high school.
1: Yeah. And it's been a wonderful experience for us, but has been very challenging on the hurry front because of, of the chaos that it brings into our daily life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But these big, I I think, you know, we've gone through these times of sitting back and going, Oh my God, what are we doing? What are we saying yes to? There's so right. many good things. And you your book again brought us back to that focus of looking at so many good things, but they're gonna get away of the great things, even to the, the little things of this last Sunday and it's Sabbath, and I was my wife was gone with some of my kids, I was there. And uh, I can't remember what it was I was starting to do, but I just had the inclination to go do something. No, that's that's producing. I enjoy yes. that. It's. Mm-hmm. I don't think I'm going to get struck down by lightning or lose it's points with God.
1: Thing. There's a time and a place for but it. But I'm it's not good. given.
0: But I'm not given that margin. I'm not feeding right. that renewal uh, so that I can be at my best for. The rest of the week.
1: And homeschooling is a great example because, you know, with my limited experience of the homeschool world, which I'm sure is different everywhere you go, but there's no, there's no like clear line of demarcation, like mm-hmm. when you've done enough, because you kind of decide what the educational curriculum is, yeah. you decide what they do every day. And so it's not like, you know, you run the same program for every single school, for every single grade, for every single student, you go through this pathway, like in a more traditional school. And that's part of the beauty of homeschool. Sure. Um, and then and then you have all the like homeschool ninja moms and dads who are out there that are just like crazy type A, crazy high energy, these educational maestros, you know, that yeah. we just chuckle about because my wife and I are so not that. I am
0: not that, yeah.
1: But, and, and then it creates this, this inner pressure where you never feel like you're doing enough and none of it's bad, you know what I mean? Like reading another poetry essay or doing this new course or yeah. doing this outing to a science museum, like these are all great things. But the question becomes like, at what point is just, do you have to draw a line? Like at what point are you past your limitations and into this new place of hurry?
0: Yeah. I, you know, I interviewed a couple just recently, Stephen and Mara Klemic, and they wrote a book called Above the Line, and it's about really living from the heart and heart styles. And they talked about one of the hardest things for them in this journey of their own message is just living it out, not being yes. a hypocrite to their own message. And I thought about you. So here you are. You guys have, have set this bar of a non-hurried life. What's the most recent thing that you guys have had to deal with of uh, about to get into something or question it and saying, oh, okay, no, that's going to violate our code here uh, of hurry. What's the latest thing you've grappled with?
1: Yeah, that's a great one. Yeah, I mean, I've learned the hard way, never write a book about hurry because (laughs) no matter who you are, you're gonna struggle with hurry. And then every time I think to myself, I literally, every time I'm in a hurry or late or stressed out, I literally think to myself, I literally wrote the book on hurry. What am I Very doing? Yeah, yeah. I'm such a hypocrite, and I am, you know, living into the things that I espouse. But I'm human, like everybody else, and yeah. I have three kids, and I live in the city, and I have a phone and a job and all the things. Um, you know, the latest iteration has been questions a lot to do with my work over travel and how much do I travel yeah. and. Um, there's been more opportunity for travel than ever before. And I, um, you know, the book thing is weird because I'm not a full time author. I also work at a church. And so, kind of having two jobs makes it a little tricky sometimes to know where to dole out my time and what's the best, you know, investment of my resources and where is my primary responsibility and all of that. And so, um, yeah, I think we kind of got out of our rule of life a little bit. And I began to travel too much. And we just recently have put the kibosh on all of that, said no to, and we decided to take a long kind of chunk, six months where I will just be home. Normally I travel about once a month, but just home straight for six months to kind of just reset and recalibrate. So the problem is, you know, life is often a moving target, in particular, depending on where you're at in your career, where you're at in your stage of life, where you're at with your family. It's not, it's dynamic, not static. So it's kind of like you figure it out for one year, one season. And a year later or a season later, you might have to like go back to the drawing board, you yeah. know, and there's certain things that are common denominators like Sabbath for us and morning prayer and long summer vacations that I just I don't ever see those rule of life kind of things changing. But um, the, the demands, the responsibilities, the struggles, the potential of each season is different. And so it's been a bit of a moving target. So what we've had to kind of come back since we wrote the book, It was always a delay, obviously the book was written several years ago, even though it just came out a few months ago and kind of recalibrate and readjust and put everything back on the table and kind of go through the whole process again.
0: Yeah. Well, even just that guiding light, kind of the family values, the personal values is so much what I appreciated this bringing, elevating the gravity of it uh, for us, for, for, for my family. I hope it's what it's going to do for folks listening to this. You are listening to the Ziegler show and we are with John Mark Comer and digging into the message from his book, the ruthless elimination of hurry. Next we address the lifestyle of Jesus. And we begin by discussing lifestyles in general, adopting the lifestyles that give us the results we want. So we'll restart right after I share some valuable products and services with you. I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese, to distilled beverages. I did a Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. You all know I greatly value and pursue my health and wellness, and I'm always looking for better products and resources. Nutritional supplements are a staple for me, and a must is a probiotic to support my gut health and function. A probiotic is something I've taken each and every day for the long-term cumulative benefits in just two little capsules a day. Taking Seed's DSO-1 Symbiotic and avoiding the foods I know my body is sensitive to has taken me from constant digestive problems to almost none. I trust Seed's clinical trials and breakthrough research that's been published in top scientific journals. You can entrust your gut with Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Go to seed.com slash drive and use code 25DRIVE to get twenty five percent off your first month, that's twenty five percent off your first month of seeds DSO one daily symbiotic at seed.com slash drive code twenty five drive. I, I want to get into one of I mean where I was just incredibly uh, blessed to get to, as you did talk about. Jesus, literally, and the lifestyle of Jesus that we are so prone to, you know, follow the tenets, the theology, but what about the actual lifestyle and bringing us into that? And before we even get into Jesus specifically, I mean, I, I love the perspective of that as we look at anybody who's success in whatever way or area we want to emulate. That's a real, that's a reason why we do the habit show, which you and I will record after this one is that we are taking every guest that I have here who has obviously achieved some success. That's why they're on the show that we're and We're sharing it with people, but then to say behind the scenes, this is what your daily life looks like in the way that you live. And for folks to see that and if they want that success, are they willing to adopt that lifestyle, which I, I now my, right. my muse on that is your story of the runners. Uh, yes. That are across <laughs> from you. Yes. Which is, yeah. So you say you want that, but then if you don't want the lifestyle, do you really want that and it's i think it's a call to the table is what it felt yeah. like to me
1: again you got to move from information and inspiration yes. to yeah. uh, to a practice to a lifestyle yeah. to habits to spiritual disciplines whatever language you want to put around it to actually turn that kind of vision into a reality in your body in your life
0: yeah well so to jesus which was so interesting because i've had that discussion in so many ways where we're you know do what jesus do back in the what would jesus do era, I remember sarcastically saying a few times, yeah, he wasn't married with three kids, which is all I had at yes, the time, or exactly. he didn't have, you know, two businesses. And I'm sure he would have done better, but you know, he didn't. And how do you extrapolate the reality of that? Mm-hmm. And you did, I felt like you did that well. And you know, the idea that it, what it kind of brought to fruition for me is, yeah, he had, he had basically three years. He knew he's going to be assassinated at the end. So my thought, if I was him, is man, let it all hang out. We're not sleeping. Right. We're not eating. We're not doing anything. We're just gonna, we're just gonna run in and uh, and and work like dogs. And yet here we see him, and that's what you showcased uh, that from a health and wellness standpoint stood out to me. That no, he went away so that he went away to, to gain more power. In essence, is that a fair yeah. way to showcase it?
1: Yeah, I think that's a fair way to say it
0: the so you're you talk you're the first person outside of my best friend my and business partner uh that has ever talked about Jesus going away fasting into the wilderness after being baptized and then being tempted by Satan and how we have always viewed that as he was at his weakest right And I'll let you tell that because I've never heard it talked about otherwise. And you, you put it in writing and, uh, yeah,
1: that's, um, um, there's a chapter in the book on, so at the back of the book, I have four practices from the way of Jesus that I think are especially conducive to kind of slowing your life down. So it's silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, and slowing. And in the silence and solitude chapter, I just write about, you know, how in the four gospels you see this kind of rhythm of retreat and return yeah. in the life of Jesus where he oscillates back and forth between time alone in the quiet all by himself in prayer with the father and then this really active life of like he's out and he's preaching and he's healing and he's doing all and he's Je- i mean he's Jesus he's leading a whole movement throughout Israel yeah. and but he oscillates back and forth between kind of silence and solitude and then kind of a return to people and to activity and to work and all of that. And um, one of the first stories about Jesus, or you could argue the first story about Jesus, is right after he's baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist, there's this crazy line that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which is just bizarre. You're like, wait a minute, he was led by the Spirit, wait, to the wilderness? And then you're like, to be tempted by the devil. And so there's a lot going on there, like in the overall narrative of scripture, Jesus has to kind of take evil head on in order to defeat it. But most people read that as, you know, at the end of 40 days, the devil comes to Jesus to tempt him. Oh, isn't that like the devil? He comes to me when we're tired and we're weak and we're at our low point and that's when he comes after us. And that could be the right reading of the story. For sure, that is a dynamic in the spiritual realm. But another way of reading the story is that actually after 40 days of prayer and fasting in the desert all alone with God, Jesus was actually at the height of his spiritual powers. He was actually in the position of strength in the spiritual realm, not of weakness. And often weakness in the body is actually a form of strength in the spirit. And then and only then did he have the power to take the devil on. And unlike Adam and Eve and every single human being ever since not fail in his Mm -hmm. confrontation confrontation with evil so that might not be the white way of reading it but i think it's a a fascinating way to read that story Mm -hmm. that 40 days of prayer and fasting jesus is actually at the height of his powers in reliance upon god not Mm -hmm. at weakness
0: well from a health and wellness standpoint as as my partner i talked about is a functional medicine doc right and We look at fasting. It's a big part of what he uses in the practice, along with a lot of things. But his fasting is to give your body a break. And I know, and this is not the you know this depends on your own level of health and wellness and where you're at. You're at, but but for me, at being at a at a fairly good level of health and wellness, if I fast, haven't done it for forty days. Granted, but. If I right. fast, you know, even at the end of yes. three days, my mental clarity is better than ever. My wow. vitality is great. And so, same thing, you're giving your body that break from digestion and dealing with food and from inflammation if you've got that going on because yes. things aren't going well and you're giving yourself that. Now, further, if you take it to the spiritual sense, and my thought was, man, Jesus was out there feasting on the Father. He was full. Yes. He was, he was, he was beating full. on God. He was bloated on God. Yeah. Mm-hmm. As opposed to sackcloth. In rags and he's dragging himself along the stones when satan comes along so i i like your i like that telling of the story i think it's legit and,
1: the, and there's such an example there there's i mean there's so much there there's there's you know where does spiritual power come from and we live in a, a western culture that you know at, Power is a form of strength, you know, and so we want to lead out of strength. But the, the counterintuitive way of Jesus in the New Testament down through church history is you actually lead out of weakness. Mm-hmm. And actually, weakness is a form of strength when it is turned into a form of dependence on the power mm-hmm. of the Spirit of God. I and mean, this is like Paul's, you know, line, in my weakness, he is strong yeah. kind of thing. It's so non-Western, so counterintuitive. So it's that whole thing. Then there's also just the beautiful kind of example set by Jesus of, um, this is not gospel language, I just, I would call it contemplative leadership, which is this pattern, like another story I refer to in the book is, you know, in Mark chapter one, where, you know, that after this crazy, long, busy day of activity, Jesus, you know, it says, we, we read that he got up early and went off to a solitary place to pray. And, you know, this, again, this pattern of retreat and return, busy, active day out, you know, and then the next morning he's up, everybody wakes up, where's Jesus? And he, he's gone. He's just slipped away. But then when he comes back, there are all these demands on him. And he has this opportunity to go to Capernaum and do this whole thing. And he says, no, And he has this remarkable clarity, you know, for this reason I have come forth, and it's to go into these other town and villages. He says no to this opportunity and goes out to do this other thing. And there's very much a a simple but profound leadership pattern there of – you know um what i would call contemplative leadership and you know cont- the contemplative tradition often people think of well that just means you go hide in a monastery and you pray and you just muse all day long or whatever but actually the contemplatives would say that the opposite of the contemplative life is an action but reaction hmm. so the opposite of you know it's it's not an active life it's a reactive kind of life in leadership And so much of leadership and of life for people is just reactive. It's just you react to the tyranny of the urgent and the outrage of social media and that day's news and that email that just came into your inbox and these nine things that people want you to do. And this person is upset with you. And it's just this reactive form of leadership. Rather than responsive, you know, and there is a healthy kind of that, but responsive and and action. And so you can live a contemplative life where you're unhurried, where there are portions of your day or your week that are carved out for quiet, for thoughtfulness, for meditation, for prayer, for strategic planning, and still live a very active life as Jesus was. I mean, Jesus was not like sitting around drinking tea all day long. He's Jesus, he was very active. But it came out of this place of like, not only inner peace, but a lifestyle of peace as well.
0: Well, and again, there's, there's so many things I was so interested in the book because you hit on things that, I've had discussions about in the past, and I never saw it fleshed out. And I, I keep chuckling as I think about it throughout the day because I've had those discussions. If I was one of the disciples, I would have been the guy saying, "Come on, seriously, man! We yes. got a world to say. We got a short amount of time. There's no way we can go." To... I would have been that guy. Yeah, how it,
1: can you turn down this opportunity? Oh, exactly. Well, I mean, can no.
0: I'm thinking about your book. You know, hey, Vogue's calling and hashtag Jesus <laughs> is trending. I thought it was the funniest thing ever because I could just—it's so relevant to yes. to where we're at. You know, talking yes. on, on the. Top topic of God, um, and, and bringing it home to, you know, to myself as I'm the student here, uh, of, of this message and reading it as such. And I have become always more and more aware. And I had my own personal reckoning a, a few years ago of, of, and I call it a God complex, a Superman complex, and just to realize how arrogant I, I was. And, and so my question that I'm, I'm going to get in, or I'm, I'm veering towards with you is where just ego and pride fit into this, especially into this busy lifestyle, because it dawned on me. It came to my wife and myself. I don't know if it was one or both of us, but where we would then, it was a kind of like a stepping back as we were complaining probably about XYZ responsibilities and then thinking, wait a minute. Who am I to, Who am I doing a favor for? Like, I'm God. Like I'm doing the world a favor with my existence and with my responsibilities. The world does not need Kevin Miller. Um, it, you know, I, I fill a role in my family, but to some degree, if I'm gone, they're going to be taken care of. There's a bigger being than me and how arrogant of me to think right. I am so all important. And if that's what we culturally carry about around, with, like a credibility factor of being so busy, so full. And I'll never forget meeting people who have, so I have nine kids and I remember meeting this lady who had 12 kids. I mean, 12, that's five more than me. That's ludicrous. How can I complain about anything? And we can all play that game. But again, going back to ego and pride and and where you see that fitting into this hurriedness uh, epidemic.
1: Yeah. I mean, again, I think you're diagnosing the thing under the thing. You know, the kind of subterranean base of the soul thing under just the lifestyle of hurry and speed and busyness and distraction. And, you know, the oldest temptation in the book, literally in Genesis chapter three, is you shall be like gods. And, you know, not human beings, you'll be like God. Yeah. And one way of reading the Genesis 3 temptation from an archetypal perspective is as the temptation to transgress your limitations. Hmm. Like God has put you in this beautiful space. And in the Genesis narrative, human beings live in this intermediary zone kind of between creator and creation, between God and the animal kingdom and the earth itself in this beautiful, like kind of, and they are a go between kind of between creator and creation. That's what it means to be made in the image of God and the temptation. And it's a beautiful space. It's an Eden space. It's a delight space. It's a good, beautiful and true space. But the temptation is to transgress those limitations, to step outside of it, to go beyond it. And part of that is like the rightful human desire to grow and mature and evolve, if you want to use that language. Um, there, there's a rightful part of that, that I think God put in us, but then there's a wrongful part where we attempt to transgress our limitations and to yeah. become gods and whatever. And that could take a thousand different iterations. You know, it could just look like working insane hours or taking too much power for us in our work or too much control over our children. I mean, it could take a thousand different iterations that, or just, you know, redefining ethics or morality for ourselves rather than trusting in God and his word. You know, there's a thousand different iterations of that temptation to become God, to transgress our limitations. But what you find is that playing God is exhausting because we're not God. And so, you know, I write a lot about in the book from Genesis 1 and 2, this this beautiful kind of tension in the Genesis narrative where human beings are made in the image of God, but they're also made out of a dust. And again, if you just read that in kind of an archetypal way, you know, there's... Like there's this sense that we're made in the image of God, and so we're just full of potential. Like we have we have God's fingerprints in us. You know what I mean? We're just full of potential to, in the Genesis language, rule over the earth, to take. This is the human impulse. Whether you're a Christian or a Buddhist or a secular person, all of us we can't help but take the raw materials of the earth and make something. We can't help but make life, make civilization, make families, make businesses, make cities, make countries. We just it's the human. It's in our blood, literally. But we're also made from the dust. You know, you can interpret that to mean that we're mortal and we're made out of atomic matter and we have limitations. We're finite. And we die. And, you know, there's so much said in the world, in particular in the kind of Western self-help growth world, which I love. I find it very helpful. I'm grateful for it. But there's so much that's said about reaching your full potential, yeah. um, which, again, I'm 110 percent for especially for people that don't come from a ton of privilege or wealth or whatever, but almost nothing is said about the counterbalance to that, which is accepting your limitations. Yeah. And, you know, if you have one message, reach your full potential, but without the kind of other side of that coin, accept your limitations as a gift from God, not as a curse, then you end up sucked into hurry, busyness, distraction, and then it's exhausting. And then who knows what comes on the other side of exhaustion.
0: That's interesting. You saying full being at our full potential. And, and I, yeah, I get that. Uh, but you know, playing God is exhausting. You said the, you know, the image of God, even there going back to Jesus, the image of God, Yes. Jesus on earth was taking time to go away. And as yeah. you talk about, and I'm going to, was not
1: I'll, an exhausted, haggard soul. Exactly. he it's would always, get tired. And there are examples of that, but he's not walking around stressed out and irritable and exhausted all the time.
0: And he goes away to regain his power. I love that aspect of renewal. And so as you talk about, and I'll, I'll folks, I'll give you the, you know, four pill, if I can call them some pillars here, in essence of silence and solitude, yeah. Sabbath, simplicity, and, and slowing, that those are not things of, I think that's what resonated with me out of the book is it wasn't saying, look, I'm going to step back and just produce less and and lead a meager little existence. It was also, these are things to do to be at your full potential, the best you can be. That's counterintuitive to what we think. And yet again, coming from a health and wellness side, it's true. And if we think about an athlete, we all get it then. An athlete, yes. man, they, an Olympic athlete, they're going to be taken care of like a Ferrari, man, the right They crew. do less to do more. They, they're perfect. Thank you. That says it a lot easier. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's the funny thing. I feel, I actually feel like I'm more productive now than I've ever been.
0: Thank you. Yeah.
1: You know, but we, what we, I think very few of us realize how much time we waste on technology and media and distraction and running errands and you know what I mean? There's so much time that is wasted. And so, yeah, I'm an advocate, not just for less work and more rest, but also for more focus and less distraction, you know? And um, how do you, I mean, and I'm at that age, I don't have, you know, nine kids, but I have three, I can't imagine nine, but I'm at that age where I have less time now as a 39 year old guy with three kids, my oldest is 14. I have less time now than I've ever had. You know, what's the adage they say for every familial relationship? cut your free time in half. Yeah. So yeah. when you get married, you have 50% of the free time you had when you were single, first kid, you know, you're down to 25%, you know, whatever it is, three kids. I'm running on like, what is that, 8% of the free time I had, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, and that's the, we don't even factor in the dog at that point, you know? So now I'm down to 5%, I don't know, the free time I used to have as a single guy. And so I actually work less hours now than I ever have even though I'm under uh, more responsibility than I've had really ever. And um, and I have, I have to work. It's the whole, you know, work smarter, not harder kind of thing. And I'm not sure that's the right language. Maybe it's work, you know, more focused. Uh,
0: I was going go to go to, I was going to smarter
1: distracted, yeah. you know? Yeah. I, <laughs> for, same thing
0: for myself. Yeah. I feel like I've just got to be more efficient because I'm not going to put in 10 hour days. I mean, I, I've got family, I've got stuff there. So in that time, I just have to cut out the crap, cut out the distractions, which goes yeah. back to what you, you know, really where you let off.
1: I mean, did you see that, that hubbub a couple was maybe three months ago about the Microsoft in Japan where they cut back to a four-day work week? No. Huh. And yeah, so they did this whole thing. They went to a, a I think it was a four-day work week, and, um, but not longer hours and productivity went up by like 40%. Wow. And there was this other software company that ran an experiment for quite a while where they're doing a five-hour workday um, so like the whole office shuts down, I think it's like one or one thirty. but you have to turn in your phone at the front door. All social media is blocked from like, you know, computers at the company, It's a software broke company and like, you know, meetings have limited time. So it's like hyper efficient yeah. and their productivity, same thing went way, 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 way up working less hours. And you can imagine those employees getting off every day at like one 30, they were living yeah. their lives, you know, so it's like five intense hours of work and then they were done. And so I I do think there's a myth, you know, I've read a number of studies in the research for the book that said productivity plummets after about 55 hours a week of, of work. So there's virtually no difference in productivity between, you know, somebody who's working 100 hours a week and somebody who's working 55 or 60 this I'm which is hard for us to fathom but more time does not always equal a more productive or meaningful life often it just means a more exhausted distracted scatterbrained one you know
0: well we've created this funky workplace where you're there and you're supposed to be there at this time and until this time and it by proxy I think fuels this we just got to take up the time and so if you do waste time it's not that big of a deal now being self-employed Um, man, I'm aware of that. As soon as I can get something done, I can go on to the next thing or to the next family engagement. I wonder what would happen in the workplace if they, yeah, just got rid of the time and just said, look, here's your task for the day, complete it. And then you're gone. My gosh, they talk about productivity. And I know for myself, the productivity, well- Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. So my book and this podcast are named What Drives You. And what drives us, the great things, is our own values, our known values. When we go astray, it's because we've lost sight of our values. Therapy is key for helping you clarify what matters most to you so you can do more of it. I was late to taking advantage of therapy. It was only for crisis, but now myself and most of the rock stars I have on my show get therapy regularly. For most people, the main hurdle is starting therapy. what I call productivity, the cre- you wrote a book, you know, the, the creative when it's, when you're at high productivity, I've only got so much time. I can get that out of me per day. Yes. And then I back off and I just, I, I I go to the busy work, which is relevant, yep. Check your emails yep. and do that. But I'm, I, I don't have as much to put out at this point. So, yeah. 55 hour week. Even I just, I, I can work that much, but I'm not productive that much time.
1: Yes. hundred percent. Especially if you do, your work is creative or what Newport calls, you know, deep work. If it's knowledge-based work or creative work or, you know, it's one thing to do emails, but it's a whole other thing to be, you know, doing knowledge work or creative work.
0: So as the culture is busier and busier and more distracted and doing the shallow work, the shallowness uh, of life—we don't have enough time to get into the depth of it. What again? As I'm reading your book and I'm thinking, pondering that, I thought, no wonder we are medicating more, and that relief is the thing. It's just, just, just let me have relief. Just let me kick my shoes off at the end of the night, grab a bag of chips, watch something on TV. Just my brain needs a break. We all say that. That's you know, yes. a culture. My brain needs a break. Have a beer, We're whatever exhausted. it is. And we never do again, back to your, I'm going to, have to pull the book up now, uh, back, back to the four things of, uh, hold on, I'm getting there of silence and solitude sabbath simplicity and slowing that those are things of so differentiating like let's throw relief out those are things of renewal and again now we're back to jesus doing that renewal when do we do that and the more harried we are it seems like the less renewal ever comes in. we're not doing sabbath we're working through it or busying ourselves or distracted and we're never doing that renewal and then we're back to we're never at our full potential as far to whatever level that could be and Yeah. Are you seeing that Well, I mean, you experienced it in your own life. You wrote about it in the book, I guess your your medication went down in essence too. Right. Need to.
1: Yeah. I I love the language of cultural narcotics, you know, which kind of just for the things that we kind of look to, to ease the pain of life. That could be alcohol. It could be narcotics literally, or it could be Netflix or it could be, you know, obsessive working out or it could be work or it could be email or it could be shopping, any number of things it could be. you know, social activity. Um, And, you know, if you think about narcotics, there is a very small and limited healthy place for narcotics. You know, like when you have a headache, it's great to have an Excedrin, you know, but when you have like brain trauma from a motorcycle accident, like at that point, you, you need to do surgery, you yeah. know, like you don't pop some ibuprofen or just stay on drugs. Like, right. You know, you need you That's need surgery, good. not a heroin dealer. That's and um, so, listen, there's a healthy place to like, hey, I had an exhausting day and I had to do all this work. And let's just watch some TV tonight or let's just relax and hang out, and order pizza. Hey, there's a th- like we're human beings There's a healthy place for that. But I think our culture is so far past that. There's a Korean-German philosopher I've been reading lately, um, Jung Chul Han, and he writes about the West's history and kind of the shift from what he calls a disciplinary society to an achievement society. And a disciplinary society, say 100, 200 years ago, it's the world of Freud. Everything's about no, so it's about what you can't do because Mm. you're a woman or because you're this or because you're a Christian or because you're whatever. And, you know, in a disciplinary society where that it's governed by no, he would say, and this is the breeding ground for Freud and like neurosis and people who feel repressed or oppressed, you know, but we've now shifted to what he calls an achievement society, which is governed by yes. So he writes about the violence of positivity is what he calls it, how mm. entrepreneur, he calls human beings in the West entrepreneurs of themselves. And wow. so now it's not, you can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. Now it's, you can do everything you want. You can be anything you want. You can do whatever you want. You can live wherever you want. You can sleep with whoever you want. You can go wherever you want. You can do all of this. And that's actually exhausting to have to like, uh, you know, discover yourself and then define yourself and then actualize yourself and then free yourself basically to play God. That Mm. is exhausting. So now he writes that now we're actually moving from an achievement society to what he calls a doping society uh, where wow. we're just basically escaping, if not into literal dope, into just whatever will make us feel good. If yeah. that's another beer or for tons of people, it's just Netflix or Amazon Prime or another night out shopping or sex. Or, I mean it can be anything. It can be moral or immoral. It doesn't, you know what I mean? You have to moralize it. Just we're turning to these things. And the irony is when we get overtired due to hurry and over busyness – we actually become, we lose the capacity to do the things that are actually life-giving for our soul. Yeah. Because in this ironic turn of kind of fate, the things that are most life-giving actually take a little bit of emotional and, and mental energy. So nobody gets done binge-watching a show on Netflix at, you know, 1.30 in the morning and just feels, ah, oh, I feel so alive rejuvenated, right Rejuvenated, yeah. I'm rejuvenated. <laughs> I'm closer to God. I just can't wait to wake up in the morning and, and do my generative work and love my family and make the world a better place mm-hmm. with a smile. Like nobody does. We just are tired and late for work the next day. Yeah. But, you know, so we, we escape down the rabbit hole where for eight hours or whatever, we're not feeling pain, stress, exhaustion. We get done, and we're no different than we were before. We're just tireder. And ironically, things like Sabbath or quiet or solitude or you know some kind of a what I call a digital rule of life, where you have some rules around your phone, this actually takes self discipline yeah. to live this way. In particular, with the digital stuff, man, it takes a lot of self discipline to not let your phone phone rule your life. And so, ironically when we get over busy and overtired, we actually lose the capacity to do the things that are actually restful and rejuvenative oh. for our soul.
0: Goodness. Yeah. So much in there that you, you said, you know, even that, yeah, that our ability to just, well, and this goes back to the digital thing that we can always have that distraction. And it reminds me, and here's my own admission. Uh, so we're watching Dark on, uh, Amazon. It's kind of like a Downton Abbey type thing, but okay. Poldark way, way back then. I don't then. know
1: anything about it. What's the era? Is it historical kind of? Yeah. Yeah. It's like, piece? it's like, well,
0: we, we, we called it now. It's like Downton Abbey for entrepreneurs. Uh, cause, okay. Cause the, the, <laughs> the main guy, he's a righteous guy and he's trying to do the right thing. And, and, but it's back in that time when they had, you know, the Kings and the Queens and the royalty and the royalty, of course the sign to, to the good side of this the sign, as you talk about in there, was of affluence, was that they had time to kill. They were right. not there busting their butts. They were affluent. Yes. They didn't have to do that. What they would do is find something that was a, the word they use is, and this is English, you know, language is diverting. Oh, that, that will yes. be diverting. We'll go do that. Because what else <laughs> do they have to do? Let's look for a diversion so that we're doing right. that. Uh, so it's interesting on on that aspect, that diversion, that we're always looking for that diversion instead of the deep work, as you talk about the deep rest, the deep renewal. But even on that, I wanted to hit on that, that royalty aspect, because you talk about that in the book, that that used to be the affluent thing, man. If you were a well-to-do person, you weren't busy. You had leisure. Right. And yes, now that
1: was the sign of wealth and now leisure. it's the
0: opposite, but there's, mm-hmm. so I, I wanted to hit on though, the real social pressure of that. And it made me think of Cal Newport again, because, you yes. know, due to him. So now I get in line, it was him and Michael Hyatt actually, because Michael talked about it too, after he's who he connected me to Cal and, he, and it was going into the Starbucks line or the coffee line or whatever, and just standing there in line, don't get your phone out. And you feel like an idiot. Like I must be the most non-important person on planet earth. I don't have any texts, calls, social media, direct messages, nothing. I'm just standing there like a psycho and it feels (laughs) bad. It's like a real social pressure. And I'm used to that from, you know, I used to be vegan and, and, uh, now even just eating whole foods makes you kind of a weirdo socially, you know? Right. And, but that, if you're not going to act busy like that, if I am going to, I found that with my own work, John Mark, even with uh, scheduling something. And it seems like the important people and I, and I could name some and I won't cause that'd be mean. And you know, schedule with them. You got to go like six months out and pick a 15 right. minute window. And I'm like, really? Yep. Dude, I can meet with you tomorrow. So I must not be, I don't want to tell anybody that. That really, I've got time open tomorrow. How is that? Yes. Well, I want that lifestyle so I can do what I want, but it doesn't feel very important. And you talk about that, especially like with slow as that segment in your book, slow. Yeah. There's nothing sexy about slow.
1: Yeah. In fact, slow has become a pejorative in American culture. When somebody's not very smart, we call them slow. Yeah. When a movie isn't very good. We call it slow. When the service is bad at a restaurant, we call it slow. It's so fascinating that there is such a cultural bias against an unhurried life.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Even going to the, to the beach, my, my wife, that's the slowest that we do. My wife go, we go on beach vacations. Where do you guys
1: go from Colorado? Like what's your beach spot?
0: Uh, Well, we've done Mexico a lot um, down there. It's actually a shorter flight, but a lot of times we go to Florida and we do Marco Island. It's down at the furthest. It's almost the furthest before you hit the Everglades and just a place that she really likes, but we sit on the beach. And we don't do anything. We, we always talk about it. We're going to go kayak or we'll go do, you know, the hang gliding thing or whatever they do behind the boat or we'll do snorkeling or whatever. And when we get there and just fall into that wreck, it's just, there's nothing.
1: You know, it's, it's been interesting to see the change in vacation style too for Americans oh, totally. at least where, you know, vacations used to be longer and used to be more, you go to a cabin or you go to the beach or, and now they're more like long weekends where we road tripped or whatever for this concert and we go shopping and we go to New York for a week before Christmas or, you know, depending. of course this changes based on how much money people have. Um, but yeah, our, vac- our, our vacations are the same. We have these just epic summer vacations, highlight of our year, multiple weeks long we go to the beach we go be on the same house for 15 years our friend zone we turn everything off so this last you know summer my phone was off for 21 days like not remotely on and we wow. just it's basically an extended sabbath rest we, we don't even go out we cook our own food most of the time and it is just the best yes. and i'm always surprised like i know almost nobody else that vacations that way
0: well, now you do, but I had to learn. It was the, I'll tell you, it was the first trip. Uh, I don't know how many years ago and my wife and I, we do a lot of trips together because we do have so many kids. So we'll, we'll get away on our own. Yes. And we went to Smart man. Cancun to an all-inclusive Hyatt thing there. And we went out one morning because of the uh, time changes, just because of our own nerve stuff. We were up at like five. I'm like, well, let's mm-hmm. go on the beach. And so we went out yeah. there and at the two hour mark, I said, honey, I've done all the nothing I know how to do. <laughs> we're here for like a week. What on earth?
1: You're two hours in. You're like, what are we going to do? Oh my
0: gosh. Yeah. And it took me a couple days to settle yes. in. And that was the start uh, for me. And now, yeah, our vacations, we literally do nothing. So my wife will take her watch off first thing. She doesn't touch her phone. Now I'll keep, I keep the phone with me cause I'm playing music. You know, I may have my little beach yes. vibe going. Uh, and I do have to, you know, there are some kids at home, so make sure yes. nobody died. Yeah. Or anything.
1: And more than one. Yeah. And more
0: than one. But yeah. To- again, it, it, but it doesn't feel because people ask, so what'd you do on a vacation? Nothing. Nothing. It, 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 really? No. And that's where it, I their, think social status again. Pressure. Yes.
1: Again. Yeah. Or you must not be important, you yeah. know, which is, that's just a lie, man. That's just, that is not right. It's demonic if anything, but you know, there's, there's something beautiful about vacation and about Sabbath on a more regular weekly basis that is a great, like, inner barometer for you to know where your overall pace of life is at. Like, Walter Brueggemann, who's an Old Testament scholar, has this great line about Sabbath. He writes, people who keep Sabbath live all seven days differently. Hmm. And one of the first things I learned when we began to take Sabbath seriously, not just as we go to church on Sunday or we have a day off, but actually as a, as a day of rest and delight and, and worship, was I can't go 99 miles per hour six days a week and then all of a sudden flip a switch and wake up on Sabbath morning all relaxed and happy and present to the moment and at peace in my soul and my body. Like I am a whole person. My mind and my body and my nervous system, it's all me, you know, and how I live for six days will determine how I live for the one and vice versa. And so one of the first things I realized is that if I get to Sabbath, or if I get to vacation and all I feel is anxiety yeah. or stress or that weird feeling like where you can be sitting on a beach and feel like this nervous energy in your body or you can be sitting on your couch on a Saturday morning or whatever and just feel like your heart almost beating or palpitating or whatever. That's a, a gentle, I think, sign from your body. You're moving too fast through life yeah. and you need not to just take a break for a day or for a week, you need to actually slow down the overall pace of your life. And you need to let this kind of Sabbath or this vacation function almost as like a a governor on the speed of your life, almost as like training wheels to keep you in a healthy kind of parameter, and a healthy pace of
0: life. Man, it, it, it it reminds me of something that you had in the book. And you talked and you were referring to the smartphone and the device era, but you said it was a quote. I think it was a quote from somebody else that it's chipping away at our capacity for concentration and contemplation. And I Mm -hmm. thought of that because you're saying there, our lives are chipping away at our capacity to even be able to rest and to Sabbath and to stop. But that, you know, concentration and contemplation that stuck out with me because, right. I mean, the listeners of this show are aspiring people. They are trying to create things. They are creating things. They're writing, they're building businesses. They're doing that. They need concentration and contemplation. They need critical thinking and clear thinking and creativity and those things. And for you to showcase that the way that we're living this hurried lifestyle is chipping away to that was very convicting. Again, to what you just said, the lifestyle we're living daily is showcasing whether we can do that or not.
1: And I think that quote is from Nicholas Carr in his book, The Shallows, which is a Pulitzer prize winning, you know, journalistic work. I think it's about a decade old now, but it's basically on how the internet, and this was before Instagram, how, you know, or social media, how the internet is changing, not only the way that we read, but the way that we think, and we're losing our capacity for, you know, uh, what Edith whats her face Wharton? I think was her last name, what she called the power of sustained attention. Mm. You know, this ability to think deeply and calmly and well. Um, the digital age is, is robbing us of that capacity, which has massive implications for spirituality. Again, I come at this as a pastor and a follower of Jesus, but it also has massive ramifications for work productivity and relational health and family life and mental health. It just has ramifications, I think, for all of our, our being.
0: Well, on this piece, too, of what are we doing to ourselves, one of the most, gosh, I guess, again, I'm going to use the word convicting cases that you made in the book was that question of what would we do with more time? Yes, (laughs) I, yes, <laughs> I don't. We, we all talk about that. Only oh, if I only had more time. And, and I've always yes. felt a little guilty because, you know, they say, hey, Michelangelo and you know Jesus, everybody had the same amount of time I do. So quit complaining. OK, I get that. But still thinking of um, I know what I would say, what I've always said is if I could clone myself, I want to clone myself so I can do uh, so I can smarter. do more. Well, but still to that, what would I do? What would I take up the time with? And so I literally, you know, and thinking about that, if if I was granted, all of a sudden I woke up tomorrow and it was one of these, you know, funky movies and and it's magic or whatever. and, And I got five extra hours, five more hours of time. What would I do with it? And it's what's the scripture? You know, he who is. He who is um, responsible with little will be responsible.
1: Yeah. Uh, That's a line from Jesus. I'll make.
0: Yeah. So that same thing. So if I'm, if I'm not taking care of the hours, if I can't do it in 24 hours, what makes me think I can do it in 30 hours? And would I not just fill it with a bunch more junk?
1: Yes.
0: Um, that one to me was just a little mind blowing that I, I, would th- I would ask everybody out there listening to this right now. to think, what would you do? Would you really write would you take time for relationships? Have that talk with your spouse? Would you meditate? Would you get more sleep? Would you exercise? Or would you just fill it with more of what you're already doing now? Because there's somebody who has less resources, less ability, less whatever that's doing more with their time. And it's the case yes. for me too.
1: And my point is, and then we'd end up even more exhausted yeah. and hurried and stressed out and disconnected from God and our own soul than we are now. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. You know. And then you're lying and. Um, man, I've used the line before too. And I can't remember the guy's name. I think it's last name starts with a D, but the, the, every system is perfectly designed to get the results it gets.
1: Yes. Yeah. I, I've looked all over to see, I've heard that as an aphorism, like who's the original, like, is there an original quote? There, it's from, there's I, a, guy, there's a guy, there's a guy.
0: Okay. I, 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 I
1: looked all over it when I was doing the research for the book. I think it's just kind of become okay. such a common phrase now that I, I Well, and
0: maybe the guy I found who exactly. said it is just another guy who's repeating it from whoever, but either way. But that, that again, so convicting that my life right now, I have designed, well, no, actually let's push back on that because I think a lot of people are going to hear that and say, well, no, I didn't design it. I did not. This happened. And there are people who had real things happen to them, victimizations when, and they, they're now handicapped or they now, you know, ended up with a relative's kid that they took in that they didn't want to choose. But how could you say no to that? Yep.
1: How do you say no to that?
0: And on and on and on to say, no, I didn't design this. So how do you? Because I believe it. Yeah, but well, how do you say what isn't?
1: The quote isn't "I designed a life." That is the quote is your okay. system is perfectly designed okay. Okay. to give you the results that you are getting. And normally, my understanding is I'm not a business guy, but that normally that's used by a business consultant. Yeah. you know, for a widget thing or whatever. Basically, hey, if the results you are getting are low profit margin or low productivity or high turnover from your employees or whatever the problem is, then something about the system of your business is out of whack. and you got to fix the system to get different results. And I think that basic overall concept you can apply to life as a whole, if the results that you are getting are I'm stressed out all the time, I'm wasting time, I don't have good discipline with my phone, you know, I'm not exercising, I feel whatever, I feel disconnected from God, I'm tired a lot, then the odds are that something about the system yeah. of your overall life is out of whack. And, and you know, I think Christians in particular can be prone can can be prone to not thinking holistically about change. Yeah. And we can kind of think, well, I'll just pray about it and God will zap me and fix all this stuff rather than take a long, hard look at how many hours are we sleeping and what's our morning routine like, and what's our relationship to our phone and what are, it's our habits, what are our habits like, what are our relationships. And, and so I think, um, it's a, As I use it, it's not a pushback on the hard – life is hard no matter what system you come up with, how much agency you have. Life is hard, and it hands us things that are so far out of our control. And you you could argue this is just a conversation for privilege. I mean what about people that are just trying to make rent at the end of the month and caring for their three kids and don't have a partner and all of this stuff. And so that isn't to negate or practice a lack of compassion for any of that at all. It's to say with whatever agency that we have, which some of us have a lot more than others, but whatever agency you have, what about the system of your life is actually inside, if not your control, then at least under your influence and you can change it to get some different results at an emotional and spiritual and relational
0: level. So just testify for me before we wrap up on your, let's go back to systems. You are calling out to us in essence of saying here 's our cultural system, and it 's probably our personal system that's that is hurried more so yes. than it should be that is harried that asking us to consider a different system that will not produce less that will produce more, but it 's a different system it 's countercultural it's it's counterintuitive to to where we 've gotten to at this point some right. testimony to people, whether they're in your life, whether they're tested, they're people who have, uh, you know, read the book and already testified of just some specific things, some specific offerings saying, look, man, I changed this and and I experienced this, this piece, this margin, this, I don't know what it would be.
1: Right. Um, yeah, I mean, really, I mean, there's lots of conversation there. So it's, sometimes it's a little hard to summarize, sure. but I definitely, There's kind of a before and after in my autobiography around this kind of, um, you know, coming to terms with hurry. Because I came up very type A, type A family of origin, which is wonderful. And for me, I was very much the like prided myself on you know, how many hours I work and I'm first in the office and last one to go home and took great pride in that and how in demand I was and how fast I literally how fast I would walk. And I would, you know, my, my wife is much more laid back. We used to get so many fights early on in our marriage, just over how slow she would walk, you know, because yeah. um, I'm like power walker everywhere I go, you know, and I was very much that person that would kind of chide or mock or demean somebody who's more, unhurried or relaxed or didn't work insane hours and um, man so it was really a 180 degree revolution in my vision of life in my thinking i remember the first time i heard i think it was andy stanley actually gave this talk about how if you can't do your job in 45 hours, that's your fault and you're doing something wrong. And I remember thinking, that's ridiculous. You have a church of like 30,000 people. There's no possible way you work 45 hours a week, you know? And I think I just bought into the kind of Elon Musk, nobody changes the world without working 100 hours a week kind of thing. But then here was somebody really challenging that assumption. And so I remember when like I got a different vision in my mind and then that actually began to work its way into my body. It was life-changing in particular for my soul for my emotional health for my relationship to my wife and my kids more than anything like the biggest change was it made me a more loving person and you know there's lots of career benefits i actually think i'm more productive and i'm better at what i do now ironically even though i do less and work less hours But man, I think, and I still have a very, very long ways to go. But again, um, a lot of our conversation has been around the kind of cultural aspects. And but again, I'm writing as a pastor and a teacher of the way of Jesus. And for me, everything in the book is really about this cultural epidemic of hurry and how it applies to our relationship to Jesus. And um, you know, for me as a follower of Jesus, he taught that the telos of the spiritual journey is love. That like everything is about. Said so the greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is to love your neighbor as yourself and even your enemy in time. And if you think about it, the case I make inside the book is that hurry is incompatible with love. Yeah, You can't be a hurried person and a loving person. Because love takes time and hurry doesn't have it. And, you know, Thomas Merton called hurry a contemporary form of violence, pervasive violence, you know, because it kills, if not literally kills people, it kills relationships, it kills compassion, it kills wisdom, it kills empathy for people you disagree with. It kills the ability to to be, to be interrupted in love. And so I think the biggest change for me, though there's still a lot of change that's needed in my journey, has it's made me a more loving person.
0: Yeah. Well, and goodness, I mean, an, an anchoring question that you ask, that you do so with so much grace. And again, as I pulled, I'm going to pull these pieces out again. Silence and solitude, Sabbath, simplicity, slowing, that they weren't work-based acts of, of faith to earn you a place in, no, in heaven. No, not but, at all. Yes. But if you don't do those, if you don't employ those in your life, do you have space for Jesus? Can I paraphrase it? Yes, Absolutely.
1: Way? Yeah. I mean, that's my point is relationships take time. And so I think there's one spot of the book where I attempt to be as very, as gracious and as kind as I am. But you know, if I didn't spend any time with my wife and I was like, Oh, I love her. She's great. But I never spent, I never went on dates with her. I didn't connect with her on a daily basis. I barely had any time for her. And she said, I really need more from you as a husband. I said, I'm sorry, I'm just too busy. Da Then at some point you would probably say, dude, you shouldn't be married. Yeah. Like you're not, you're not, you're not giving the time that's necessary to this relationship. And I think there are some people who would very much identify as a Christian, but if you actually look at their day-to-day life, they're not giving the time to a relationship with Jesus um, that it takes to actually have a healthy, thriving relationship. And that doesn't mean necessarily that God's mad at you or you're earning anything or you're a bad person. It just means there's an honest moment that some people have to come to. Oh, wow, relationships take time. And they take practices by which we make space and create time for relationship. You know, in a marriage, that's date night with kids. That's often family night, or you know, you know, night with your boy. I do a, every week. I do a hour and a half with my boy. You know, like there's that's just how you prioritize relationships. You give them time and attention. And I think our relationship with Jesus is no different. In fact, I think you could argue it's actually even more so.
0: Yeah. Thank you for yeah, this, for, for being on. here, uh, the message again, it was just such a, and I, I, yeah, it's hard to use the word you, like you made a case cause it didn't feel like you were trying to come and drill this home. It was a very gracious, uh, graciously given message, but man, it just made a good, a great case of math of a plus B equals C. And if we want this, these are the things that we do. So I'm grateful for my own life, as I said, I get to be the first student here, uh, and uh, thank oh, you I for that. But uh, grateful to bring well, it you've to been
1: the so warm and kind, and far more uh, far more encouraging than I deserve. It uh, is well, legitimate. So thank you for having me uh, on.
0: My honor, and, my and honor.
1: thanks for those to those of you for listening. It's really kind of you to give us your time.
0: Okay, friends. So this life of hurry. How is it working for you? Are you truly trapped uh, and since this show, you know, it's interesting, my wife and I, we registered one of our kids for soccer. It's a big time commitment. And on this message though, we said, are we willing to do this? If we are, what are we going to give up? Or are we just going to make our lives busier? And we talked about that and found some solutions. And this is what we want to keep doing so that we are not living this life of hurry. I am no longer proud of being busy of saying, I'm so busy. I found myself lately more and more saying, man, I am open. I am open. Again, you can connect with uh, John at his website, johnmarkcomer.com. And of course, find The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry there or wherever you buy books. Well, coming up in episode 768, auditing the negative to be positive. So being positive instead of negative. We've all heard plenty about that. But then we go about our days and our lives being what? Are we really changing ourselves? Are we more positive and benefiting from that? Are we still speaking the negative? And as I often seek to do, I want to know the root issue. If we are dealing with any negativity, why? Where is it coming from? And I'm not going to tell you. And instead, I'm just asking. And I did ask, actually, I posted this question on Facebook. Which of these are you most prone to struggling with? Number one, complaining. Two, criticizing. Three, gossiping. And four, sarcasm. And about which, A, other people, B, circumstances, or C, yourself. And then what do you think is the root cause? Well, the responses are still coming in as I record this now. Uh, The question was prompted by my recent show, episode 763 with Will Bowen, uh, titled, Complaining is Poisoning Our Success. We've gotten great feedback on that show, by the way, and I really encourage you to listen to it if you haven't. And actually, it's a great one to share with those closest with you as their complaining helps fuel yours and vice versa. Well, I had Tom Ziegler join me on this show and we talked through many of the comments with the intent of helping us all understand why we have these feelings so we can be aware and take steps to curb them. Well, till then, folks, thank you as always for letting me walk with you as we inspire our true performance